Welcome to our podcast, Public Health Encoded, with Dr. Saroj Pachauri, brought to you by Center for Human Progress in partnership with the POP movement, where POP stands for Protect Our Planet. Dr. Saroj Pachauri, a public health expert, provides commentary on some of the major public health issues of current times and the various determinants of public health at play with high-risk and vulnerable groups. Every month, Dr. Saroj Pachauri, a doctor of medicine and a distinguished public health scholar, with over 60 years of experience will unpack key public health concerns and opportunities in the current global arena with evidence and insights. Welcome back listeners, I Drisha Pathak, your host, once again welcomes you to the Public Health Uncoded with Dr. Saroj Pachauri for a conversation with our today's guest. We have an important topic to discuss today, one that originated as an outbreak back in the 1980s and eventually escalated into a pandemic. However, it has now transitioned into what some might label as an epidemic or an endemic situation, particularly in poorer and vulnerable countries. This health issue took a backseat for nearly three years due to the overwhelming presence of COVID-19 pandemic, but it has not ceased to be a significant threat to global well-being. This issue that deserves our attention is HIV, which continues to be a major global challenge. It has tragically claimed the lives of approximately 40.1 million individuals and its transmission is ongoing in every country across the globe. In fact, some countries are reporting an alarming rise in new infections, despite having previously witnessed a decline, which raises serious concerns, especially in the post-COVID-19 era. Today, we have our guest, Mr. Rajiv Dua, who is a seasoned professional with over 33 years of experience in the health sector, has dedicated his career to improving health outcomes in the various countries such as Bangladesh, India, Liberia, Nepal, the Philippines and South Africa. In addition to his work in these nations, he has also provided consultancy services in over 11 other countries. Mr. Dua's areas of expertise revolve around community health, marginalized populations, self-care, social marketing, developing cost-effective interventions, and risk management with the health sector. Welcome Dr. Pachauri and Mr. Rajiv Dua. Rajiv, welcome to this podcast. I am so honored that you have agreed to have this discussion on a subject of great importance, the subject of HIV and AIDS, a subject that has been somewhat neglected in the recent past and needs to be brought front and center. Thank you so much for joining and I'm sure that we will all greatly benefit from your inputs at this discussion because you have extensive experience working with a number of countries, including of course India, and you have intensive experience in working on programming, working with programs, especially to the vulnerable populations. So it is going to be very, very useful for us to hear you speak on this subject. But before we begin, May I just backdrop for this and take the liberty of reminiscing for a few minutes. You know, I'll go back to the early 80s, and that is when the problem began. And when the problem began is when I started working on this problem, which was not seen as a problem by anybody. Uh, The major barrier we had, the major challenge we had, in fact, a wall in front of us, was that we were in denial. India was in denial. Other countries were were in denial. This was not a problem. So if it wasn't a problem, then it needed to be, need not be addressed. 
a big problem there. Why was there such a lot of denial? And the reason, I think, among many was the fact that it was there was a connotation to sexuality and there was a connection with gay populations, especially in the US who had had this infection first. And so it was a problem of them, not of us. It was their problem. It was a problem of the marginalized populations, of those that were discriminated. But after that, the numbers began to rise. And as the numbers began to rise, programs began to be implemented. Large programs were implemented all over the world, including in India. And HIV began to hit the headlines. It hit the headlines everywhere. It had the headlines not only among the scientific community, but also among the public at large. Every day we were seeing headlines on HIV all around the world, as we have recently been seeing for COVID. However, in the last few years, there has been somewhat of an eclipse, a relative silence. Why is that so? Have we overcome the problem? No, I don't think so, because only in December 22, the UNAID reports was titled, In Danger. Why is the HIV response in danger? Can you throw some light on it, please? Thank you, Dr. Saroj, uh, for uh, inviting me to this uh, podcast. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a very nice, you know, to be connected with you again. Yeah, in fact, you know, uh, coming out of the COVID epidemic and even before the COVID epidemic hit, uh, there was a slowdown in the progress that the HIV's uh, response was making globally. During COVID, it kind of hit very badly and uh, it made us uh, look back at the epidemic. So what comes out in the 2022 report of UNAIDS is that there are 1 million more new uh, infections than we had anticipated globally, which means is that the response, the intervention or the decline of new infections had slowed down to a dangerous level. And there are several factors, you know, that uh, have. So just to give you uh, and the audience a snapshot, there are today approximately or as per the, as per December last year, around 39 to 40 million people living with HIV and only 29 million of them are on treatment. So almost 10 million are in spite of having implemented test and treat that everybody should have in spite of medicines having uh, rates having plummeted since the 80s, you know, when one month dose used to cost something like $10,000, $20,000, it's now a fraction of the cost. So uh, there are only 29 million people, so almost 10 million people short. And the resources are also at a, you know, uh, kind of they have decreased. In fact, UNAIDS report says that only $21.4 billion are available annually against the requirement of 30 billion. Uh, so what, what is being uh, said is that against like, uh, so everything, A, the response is slowed down, B, that there are many more people who require treatment are and, and are not on treatment, and the resources available have shrunk dramatically. And that's why the UNH report points out that uh, the response is in danger. Uh, thank you, Rajiv. Uh, so you talked about treatment, and so let's focus a bit on treatment. Now, uh, we know that uh, there's no cure for HIV, but there are treatment regimens which have to be taken for life. And those have been implemented and even upscaled to a considerable degree. Everybody who's HIV positive would need treatment, whether it's a man or a woman. And there is, of course, in our country, as in other countries, a patriarchy prevents, uh, which, is a, which creates a gendered approach. And women are therefore somewhat uh, sidelined in, in almost every program. In the case of HIV and AIDS, fortunately, because of the institutional deliveries that have been taking place in increasing numbers and also because the prevention mother and child transmission program has been implemented, which has been very, very helpful in bringing down the, the incidence of and the prevalence of vertical transmission that is the prevented the mother to child transmission. But we know that in discordant couples, there is a high seroprevalence and therefore there is a need therefore not for the woman to wait till she's pregnant before she gets an HIV test. She should be getting an HIV test at the best of times and at all times. And so there is this, this issue. The other problem is that 
many people who are HIV positive, they do not know that they are HIV positive and therefore they do not go for treatment. And here again, there are there is a need for changing some of the strategies that have been used, especially in the field of communication interventions for HIV and AIDS. You know, today there is a huge change in terms of the use of mobile phones and social media. And so communication strategies for HIV and AIDS must keep pace with that and go forward in terms of um, making people, providing communication so that people actually feel that they are at risk and therefore come forward for testing and therefore for treatment. Uh, and also now we have other technologies like HIV, other saliva-based HIV tests and other tests. So we need to really rethink our programs in terms of HIV treatment. And we know, however, that there are huge gaps between what are the targets for treatment and what in fact is, is happening. So can you please focus on this and tell us how we how we can bridge this this enormous gap in treatment yeah so let's get back to uh, you know what we say popularly as the first 95 is that of all those people who are currently hiv positive at least 95% of them should know their status so that they can initiate treatment and globally what we are seeing is that the global average is coming to 75 so that means is that we are 20% short of the people who should know so therefore there are many more people out who are living with hiv but have little clue about uh, their status and hence unable to start treatment. So that's the first over battle we have to overcome. Now, as you rightly said, is that the whole uh, story. So there are people who, as of today, do not know about uh, their current status. And what we are seeing is that most of them, a significant number come from the young population. So, so what has happened is that, uh, I mean, if you go back to the, earlier days of the epidemic, you know, we had these massive communication campaigns, there were hoardings, there were uh, you know, TV spots, radio spots, jingles, uh, and everything. So, so they worked at that point of time. Uh, but what has happened is, as you rightly pointed out, uh, mobile technology has come in, there's a lot more social media, there is Facebook, there is Insta, people are glued to that. So, uh, I mean, the, the current generation hardly watches TV, television the way we watched it. So our strategies have to change. They have to be more targeted. They have to be through the channels which the current audience watches. So we have to shift gears and uh, find people where they are accessing. So for example, the traditional hotspot approaches to, for example, finding sex workers or finding men who have sex with men are uh, no more going to, uh, are no more working in fact. So people have gone virtual. So the idea is that our communication has to go virtual. Our ways of uh, explaining people have to go virtual uh, about what are the risks and with uh, advent of technology, I mean, and uh, the importance of self-care, a lot of it can be achieved uh, within people's home. So people can do their risk assessment in the home uh, by use of technology. They can assess their risk and not only assess their risk, but for example, in many of the countries, you can order uh, self-test kits online. Some uh, governments are sending it free. There are uh, assessment, uh, artificial intelligence-based uh, uh, assessment uh, kits available online, which are as good as doing a screening test yourself at home. So linkages to uh, you know screening oneself, uh, the technology has uh, changed that dramatically and uh, it's a cost-effective. So that would be uh, the first thing is to let people know their status. The other challenge in treatment is that uh, which, which science has to kind of has made progress. We have many more regimens which do not give as much uh, adverse effects as earlier we used to get. But still there are adverse effects and uh, the treatment literacy has to help because uh, what we are seeing is that people tend to give up uh, you know, treatment uh, right in the initial phase. 
but then they're easy to bring back also because the adverse effects are not so uh, you know difficult to manage now. However, what we're also seeing is that long-term survivors who are taking medicines are now experiencing what we call as treatment fatigue. So people are getting fed up of taking long-term treatment. They're going off treatment uh, in between. And I have taken like treatment for say 15 years, 17 years, 18 years, and I'm still going to at some point of time uh, start experiencing some kind of adverse effects. So the tendency is to go off and hence care and support programs uh, need to be built up, keeping in mind that a large chunk of the population which started treatment early on is now aging. And, and that aging population has its own need the people living with HIV who are you know now in their 50s and late 50s. So I think there's a long way to reconfigure our uh, programs uh, to meet the needs uh, of uh, the times which we are living in now. So th that's the treatment gap. And I think supply chains across the world have moved on. They have uh, made the medicines available, but yet they also remain uh, as a weakness as of today, because uh, like, I mean, for example, I was in Africa when COVID broke out and uh, India, which is uh, the pharmacy to the world, uh, shut its ports. So for all practical purposes, supplies of ARV to Africa were shut down and there were shortages. So we have to also reimagine the way we want supply chain to be thought of. Could we bring uh, manufacturing of ARV nearer to the place where they're needed? For example, in setting up ARV manufacturing units in Africa. So it's like, you know, larger uh, scale of things which we need to think of. But uh, there are, I mean, and there are uh, talks going on at larger, you know, at the macro level of uh, kind of, can we bring uh, manufacturing closer uh, to the place where uh, the drugs are required? Thank you. This is very helpful. Uh, the next question I have is why... What can we do actually to keep HIV negative people negative? In other words, the issue of prevention. Now, with the with the focus on treatment and, and efforts to upscale treatment, prevention has taken a backseat. We know that. And we also know that prevention is an essential pillar. Prevention and treatment are the two essential pillars for addressing the problem of HIV and AIDS. What can we do, for example, condoms have been deprioritized, and obviously we need to bring that back to normal to again enhance the use of condoms and other prevention, you know, other prevention measures. What do you think we can do to focus again on prevention and ensure that along with treatment, prevention measures are also under? Thank you, uh, Dr. Pachari. So what is uh, happening is that there was a much needed uh, focus that net had to go for treatment and rightly so. So we upscaled our treatment program. However, uh, what as the report says is that the, the resources which are required proportionately do not increase. For example, even today, there's an annual shortfall of around $10 billion across the globe. So what has happened is we kind of rejig the current available resources and put it in the right place, that is treatment. Because finally, if the person is on treatment and the viral load is suppressed, then the person will not pass on the infection to another person. However, uh, there will be chances where the person will not be virally suppressed and uh, the person may pass on the infections or for example, the people who have do not know their status yet. So having, uh, you know, like it was a very kind of a choice, uh, you know, the decision maker had to make is to try to save lives and move quickly the resources to treatment and rightly so. However, it is not about, uh, you know, like it should not be a, a kind of a, how do you say an argument between treatment and prevention. It should be both together. It's not one versus another. It should be, as we rightly say, you know, treatment and prevention. So it is the right time to reimagine uh, and refocus on prevention, which means is that we need to bring back old methods, which were the time-tested methods like condom back in. And uh, remember condom social marketing, condom programming. We don't see that kind of uh, uh, campaigns and uh, you know the beautiful like uh, 
uh, you know, the condom displays and everything which used to happen and uh, kind of make uh, condom a fun thing uh, rather than a disease prevention tool. So, so we need to bring back, revive uh, those things. But also, the newer uh, prevention technologies uh, have come in. For example, pre-exposure prophylaxis. That is a pill that you can take every day to prevent yourself from HIV. And it's highly effective tool for uh, men who have sex with men and female sex workers. Uh, so, so that needs to be uh, brought in, uh, you know, into focus. And uh, right now there are governments which are concerned about the cost, et cetera. But remember, if we go back a few years back, the same argument was used for treatment. It's too costly, should we give it to everybody? What if people forget to take their pills every day and they become resistant, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the same arguments being used. So, but what we have seen is that as the use of PrEP pills has uh, increased and the prices have started dropping down. Just to give you an example, in India, for example, uh, a bottle of one month of supply of PrEP just a year back used to be available at around 3,000 rupees. That is roughly, say, around, uh, you can say, around $40 a month. Now, uh, just one within one year, it has dropped down to less than 1,000 rupees, which is just like $11 or $12. So that's the kind of dropping of prices when the volumes go up. So I'm sure if the governments were to sit up and uh, figure out ways and means of you know, providing for uh, money for PrEP and negotiate better prices, and I'm sure agencies like United can, United can help in that. So we will have much lower prices than what we even see today, and the volumes will be greater. So PrEP, for example, is an excellent tool for uh, prevention amongst discordant couples. So if the person who's negative starts taking PrEP, then the chances of the person getting get dramatically reduced. Uh, it is a very good tool for, uh, for example, for sex workers and for men who have sex with men. And now there are not just the oral PrEP, there are long acting PrEP. So there's so many varieties available. I think the governments have to uh, embrace them and uh, make sure that uh, the pricing is reduced and it will. I mean, we have seen, I've just given you an example of what I have observed in one year. So once the volumes go up, the government start negotiating prices uh, with the pharmaceutical industries, it, they will become much more affordable. And no matter what the price is, a human life is always precious, you know, than a pill which we have put a price on. So that's the second part. And I think the third one is also to uh, go back and look at our communication campaigns, because remember, as we said in the initial stages, that people have to be made aware of risks and uh, the communication channels have changed. So we see is that a lot more uh, new infections are coming from the younger population. So it's time to go and focus back on the adolescent uh, and uh, especially, uh, you know, girl child and even uh, young male uh, population uh, from key population so that they can adopt. The one gray area which still remains is basically changing of laws and how we ensure that prevention methods are available to, for example, say people who inject drugs. So we have seen that, you know, uh, decriminalization of certain behaviors, uh, certain actions helps. Uh, we have seen in India, for example, that decriminalization of homosexuality has helped the HIV response to reach out. However, we are seeing the reverse trends, for example, in Uganda, where the government is uh, reinforcing one of the laws that criminalize homosexuality to the point that anybody who assists or helps a person from LGBT is also being criminalized. So I think decriminalization should happen in the similar way, way. If using drugs is a mental health problem, then it should be looked as a mental health problem and not as a, a social uh, or a legal problem. And the person should be offered uh, therapies which are available, whether it is uh, oral substitution therapies, which help people to uh, ward off uh, injecting drug, 
uh, or whatever options are currently on the table. So and there are quite a few of them which are working. So I think there's uh, the other angle for prevention is to decriminalize behaviors which uh, criminalize certain actions that are uh, kind of aiding the HIV to fastly spread. Well, as you mentioned that, only this morning's news was that the Ugandan president, the president of Uganda, has signed a punitive anti-gay bill that includes a death penalty. So we haven't quite got over the whole issue. We need to work much harder, as you said. But finally, uh, last but not least, I'd like to talk about, uh, like us to talk about the resources. What is the situation of resources for every every program? We need resources as we do for HIV and AIDS. Now, the source story on HIV and AIDS has been quite interesting. During the 90s, when we were having large programs, there were multiple donors that were funding HIV and AIDS programs. <clears throat> there was the, uh, the Global Fund, which of course is still continuing to fund HIV and AIDS. There was Bill and Gates Melinda Foundation that had a huge program, 10-year-long program that covered India. There was USAID and many others. And then we used to have these large international conferences every year. Every year, the, conference, the International Conference on AIDS was hosted by a different country, and it was attended by tens of thousands of people, and large funding was available not only for the conference, but also for the programs. And at this conference, and not only not only the researchers and other scientific community that came to share the results of the findings of the most recent research, but it was attended by governments, by autocrats, by bureaucrats, by um, civil society, and by, by populations that were gay, that were sex workers, and others. And it was, it was a forum, in fact, for raising resources. It provided a forum for, for all of them to carry out the advocacy to to convince governments in their respective countries to undertake programs. The situation on funding today, however, is completely different. Can you tell us something about what is happening and what needs to be done in terms of the resources, in terms of funding these important programs? So what we have observed is that overall, there is almost like just in the last two to three years, there's a 6% decrease when the number of people living with HIV have increased. So as I pointed out in the beginning of the program, we currently need around almost $29 billion per annum uh, for fighting this disease. And the money available today is around 21 to 22 billion per annum. So it's like what we're saying is that uh, the resources, the international donors, A, have not kept pace with the growing need of the epidemic. Uh, though the costs have fallen down, the per unit costs are dramatically reduced. So ideally, they should have pumped money and said that let's end the epidemic by 2030, as is the promise. You know? But rather than pumping in, they've started reducing. There's a complacency that has set in. Just to give an example of the Global Fund's recent replenishment cycle, the aim was to raise around 18 billion for three years. And they managed to uh, raise around 14 billion. So there's almost a shortfall of almost 25 to 30%. So globally, there's a massive shortfall, almost of 30 to 35%. So what is uh, happening is that though the cost of interventions has is going down, the money is also reducing. So had the money supply kept the pace, then we would have probably in the position to end the epidemic. Uh, and we also have seen that when you need to mobilize resources, you can. I mean, the, the classical case of when COVID came in and suddenly the resources were mobilized. So it just is a matter of uh, political commitment whether it be of international donors or domestic, uh, you know. So, for example, uh, including India, there is a freeze on the uh, budget for HIV for the next three years to five years. So, what, what I'm trying to say is that 
instead of growing, when you put a freeze and you factor in inflation, the budget is actually decreasing. And therefore, that makes uh, it not a success story. I mean, it's a matter of political will. It's about advocacy across the globe that we are not talking about like the common uh, thing is that, oh, let's talk about climate change because that's the in thing. Yes, we need to talk about climate change. It is going to impact us. But there is enough resources in the world that can fill up this current gap of 4 to 10 billion, as the program may be, overall a global gap of 10 billion. Uh, it's not a big amount. It's equivalent to almost, say, uh, building one aircraft carrier less in the whole world. You know, <laughs> that, that's the cost of uh, HIV program we are talking about. So, so it's not huge amount of money. Uh, it's also about uh, the political will. And it's also, I think the people, the implementers have to realize that we have to be more efficient. Uh, we have to focus on high impact programs. Uh, we don't have to, uh, we have to have more targeted uh, programs rather than having generic programs, which kind of just kind of, which have low impact than what was desired. So I think it is time for the governments, the advocates, the people in HIV, populations to come together and from the north and the south together uh, to create once again a movement to say that we need the HIVS response to be uh, adequately resourced because if we don't do it the danger is as the report points out we to point out is that it will go out of hand once again infections in many of the countries amongst key populations have started increasing we are not keeping up the pace uh, with the way the epidemic is going so rather than wait and for another five years and then wake up it is better to wake up today, invest adequately so that we can have an AIDS regeneration. Thank you. And thank you, Rajiv. This is a, an excellent note on which to complete our discussion. Uh, there is a great need for funding. We need more advocacy uh, to raise funds. We need to have much more efforts to raise funds. And we need to target programs that are high impact and therefore more effective and efficient. Uh, I think this is uh, very, very important. I, I think it's an important note on which to end. I thank you very much for having provided us deep insights, nuanced insights into the problem of HIV and AIDS. And I'm very grateful to you for having been with us today. Thank you very much, Rajiv. Thank you, Dr. Pachari. Wow. Once again, the conversation we had today with Dr. Pachari with our guest, Mr. Rajiv Dua, was incredible. They quoted this recent UN report that says HIV is in danger. And after listening to them, I actually feel that it is a real threat. Basically, the response rate has been slow both before and after the pandemic, as Mr. Dua mentioned. But what's alarming is that in 2022, they reported 1 million more infections than expected. But here is the thing. When it comes to testing, treatment and medicine, we only have a fraction of the funds we need. We have got about 20 to 21 billion dollars, but we actually need 30 billion. On top of that, only 75% of the 95% of the people who should know their HIV status actually do. So we are short by 20% there. And what is concerning is that a significant number of new cases are actually young people. And here, I totally agree with Mr. Dua that the younger generation no longer watches TV. In fact, they are more on their mobile phone or OTT platforms. The old strategies just aren't cutting it anymore. So the communication campaigns does need a makeover along with the testing and treatment strategies for this young population. And self-care interventions like PrEP can offer a good solution provided they are budget friendly. And here is another important fact that he mentioned today. The people who were identified when these campaigns started are now getting old. It's crazy how quickly we got tired of the pandemic in just two years. So yes, we 
need to pay attention to the needs of the aging population who are experiencing treatment fatigue. Overall, a comprehensive and multifaceted approach that combines balanced priorities with funding gaps by increasing the funds, targeted communication campaigns that are prevention-focused, and improved testing and treatment accessibility are a must. Focusing more on just new issues instead of filling the gaps we already have will definitely put us in danger. Dr. Pachori, with her extensive experience in the field of HIV and AIDS, highlighted the most urgent issues during her conversation with Mr. Dua. Undoubtedly, our upcoming episodes of Public Health Encoded with Dr. Saroj Pachori, presented by Center for Human Progress in collaboration with the Pop Movement, will continue to address similar crucial topics. Stay engaged for future episodes as we bring you more significant subjects that demand attention. We'll meet you in the next episode.